Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Hi everyone. Today I'll be speaking with Nora Al-Ramahi. We're going to dive deep into the topic of diabulimia and eating disorders. So please, if you are triggered by these conversations or you wish to avoid them, feel free to skip this podcast episode. We also highlight at a, at a point midway through the conversation or early in the conversation when we will dive into the topic. So you may also cut the episode off at that time, but please do not feel that you need to stay and listen to this if it is something that will make you uncomfortable or is triggering for you. If you need support, please reach out. I'm happy to connect you with Nor or other other professionals that might be able to provide support. There is no shame in asking for help. A little bit more about Nor Al-Ramahi. She is an Emirati of Palestinian origin. She was born and raised in Abu Dhabi and went to university in Dubai. She's currently living in California. She was diagnosed at the age of five with type 1 diabetes about 27 years ago. However, that hasn't stopped her from being very active, athletic, and she's also a power lifter. She has worked with multiple diabetes organizations over the years. For example, for the past 13 years, she's worked with children with diabetes, where she started as one of the child program staff, and then she later took over the marketing for them, and she's now a speaker at their Friends for Life conferences. Her areas of expertise are type 1 diabetes and eating disorders, parenting with type 1, sports and type 1, and pregnancy. She's worked as the community manager at a local not-for-profit called CarbDM for five years. After that, she moved to Stanford Medical Center, where she now works with the type 1 diabetes research team, where they focus on diabetes technology. Think closed-loop systems, pumps, phone applications, and other digital innovations that really change our lives. She's also a part of an expanding type 1 diabetes group called Sugar Mamas that offers support for women in family planning, pregnancy, and motherhood. She is now focusing on her kids and also getting a nursing degree, a nurse practitioner's degree, actually. I am so happy to have her on the show. Um, you probably heard her earlier in the season on our diabetes super panel. She woke up at 5 a.m. to join that when we recorded it. And she is so full of wisdom, knowledge, and experience. And it was such a pleasure talking to her and also very eye-opening. So let's get on with the show. Good morning, Nora, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this while you are visiting in Abu Dhabi. It's a real pleasure to talk to you again and see you. How have you been? I've been good. Thank you for having me. It's really been an honor um, being on the podcast here with you. Um, I've been good. So we just got uh, we just got to Abu Dhabi two days ago. So still kind of recovering from jet lag, but it's been great seeing family and being at home again. Um, and yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was only two days ago. I thought you were here for like already a week or so. So double it thank like you with the jet lag. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, no. So yeah. People that are listening, they would have heard a little bit about you um, from our super panel that we did. And we just replayed that on the podcast a few weeks before the time that this will be, um, this episode will be dropped. But why don't we start, um, if you'd like, you start with your your diagnosis and tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, So I was, I was born and raised, I'm Emirati, I'm Palestinian Emirati, I was born and raised in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I was diagnosed, so 
um, it's actually very interesting because my mom and my family don't really remember the exact date of diagnosis. It's kind of like their their brain completely blocked that. But I was around the age of yeah, around the age of uh, six. It was it was the summer, and it was very typical uh, kind of diagnostic uh, diagnosis story. I was a, a chubbier kid, and I started losing a lot of weight. Um, and, um, I started wetting my bed and I was like very potty trained at that point. So it was, um, it was very out of the ordinary. Um, and my dad's uncle was a doctor and my dad was talking, talking to him. He was like, she's really been wetting her bed and like, um, very fatigued and about like the typical symptoms. And he has, he kind of put one and one together, but kind of wanted to make sure. So he's like, bring her to my clinic tomorrow. Uh, we'll run a couple of tests. And of course I was diagnosed then and there. Um, and this was 27 years ago. So I've been living with type one diabetes for 27 years now. We moved to the Bay area, um, California, San Francisco Bay area, 10 years ago, me and my husband. And now we have seven-year-old twin boys. Um, I, uh, I worked in diabetes nonprofit and advocacy um, for, oh God, I can't remember, for more than 13 years. And then the past couple of years, I worked at Stanford in uh, type 1 diabetes research. So we did a, I worked in um, diabetes technology, insulin pumps, uh, CGMs, and that kind of stuff. So that's amazing. Like being in an yeah. environment like Stanford and contributing to the future of design and, and what everyone is using must be really rewarding. It is. That's definitely not something I take for granted. Like knowing that I'm privileged enough to be amongst the best is, is has been really a humbling experience. Um, that's, that's very cool. And when you were diagnosed, I just want to say kudos to your doctor 27 years ago that kind of, like you said, put two and two together because so often, even today, still doctors miss the diagnosis and often think it's, it's something else. So that's a really nice story to hear. One thing I have to tell you that I don't think I ever had a chance to tell you. So years ago, I took my son to the children with diabetes conference in the U S for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's a very large family conference that happens in Florida every year in the heat of the summer. Not very much unlike the heat here. <laughs> I forgot how hot and humid some parts of the U.S. could be. But that year when I went, when people would ask where I was from, I said, we're living in Dubai. Every single person that was a regular or a volunteer at that conference is like, do you know Nor? Have you met Nor? And I'm like, who's Nor? And because it was just nothing but amazing like, oh my gosh, you have to meet Noor. And then this was kind of like Aww. going in the first day. And then after, um, then people were like, oh, Noor's not coming this year. And they're like, oh, you got, you got to meet Noor. And so then when we finally connected actually in a, in a different way, not from that conference or anyone that was saying, I have to meet you. I was so glad though, because people are like, you have to meet Noor. Like, Every single person. And even it got to the point where before they would say, oh, Dubai, do you know? I'm like, I know I have to meet Nort, right? I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I, you're definitely. I my family. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're definitely doing amazing things and people can't say enough good, good stuff about it. So because you live in the U.S. now, one thing I want to ask you is, I mean, 
I'm not living with diabetes. I experienced it through my son and I observed different things, but how do you find living with diabetes there versus living with diabetes here? Is it different? Yes. Well, first of all, I want to really acknowledge the fact that you, that you acknowledge that even as a mom with a a mom of a kid with type one diabetes, that you don't understand the full extent of it. That's huge in itself. A lot of people like my kid has type one and they just feel like they are entitled to the same feelings and opinions as someone living with type one. So I have to you. Thank you. No, I, I have no idea. I know what it's like to be a mom and all that worry and everything that goes with that, but to experience the stuff that he's going through and the things that he's going to go through and the things that I hear people share with me. And maybe that's just also part of my training as a coach, but I don't know what anybody goes through nor, and there's no mistaking it. And I realized that even, sorry to digress a bit, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, when I was doing a lot of running and then I'm like, I'm always having to go to the toilet. And then one night it wasn't in the morning, but I checked my blood sugar and it was slightly elevated. And I thought, wow, what if I did have diabetes? It wouldn't be type one, but I I could see type two because I'm never sleeping. Right. And that's like one of the signs of kind of insulin resistance and all the things that went through my head, the worry, the, oh my gosh, can I do this? Can I do that? Are things that I would never have thought of as the mom of a person with type one. And so that was just only not even the tip of the iceberg, but just a little bit of insight into how you all live day in, day out, always thinking, always calculating. And it's really, unless we've we've lived with it. And even I think doctors also can get a little bit um, complacent about it too. Like, oh, you just need to do this or when I attend medical conferences and listen to some of the discussions and speak up as a mom and sometimes try to advocate on behalf of people with diabetes, if there's nobody there, they just kind of think, Oh no, you just need to do this, but it's not that. So anyway, thank you for acknowledging that I acknowledge yeah. that but it's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. And which yeah. is why I love these conversations because it's so important for people to understand how challenging it is and also for the people who have diabetes to know that they are not the only ones going through this. So. Yeah. So to going back to your question, I think first I have to preface by saying that I haven't been, I haven't lived here in the past 10 years. So I really don't know how healthcare is right now. Although I do, I still go to the diabetes clinic when I come here. So I do have a kind of a glimpse of what goes on on the inside. Um, But for the most part, I think it really has a lot to do with how culture perceives it and the stigma. And I feel like the, um, this social support aspect of it is very different here than in the U S I feel like there's a lot more resources available over there. And because majority of the technology does come out of there, they are more advanced in that sense. But again, the United States is massive. So you, there are still pockets in the US where they don't even have endocrinologists. So it kind of, I'm, I'm very privileged and lucky to be living in one of the most advanced areas when it comes to type 1 diabetes research, like Stanford is one of the leading um, te- technology um, centers over there, so medical centers, but also just like the way people approach it. Um, and talk about it and the stigma around it is not the same as it is over 
here. Um, I struggled a lot with that. Even just growing up when I was diagnosed, there were, I, there were three, three other people in my school who had type one diabetes, but nobody ever talked about it. It was kind of like a taboo topic. You know, we, we knew that we had type one diabetes, but it's just, it wasn't something that we really wanted out there. You know, it felt like it was kind of like a scarlet letter, you know, people would have, would kind of look at us as, less than or like damaged goods kind of thing. So we kind of dealt with it on our own terms, you know, very hush hush. And then as I got older, I I would also feel and see the way people looked at me when they did find out that I had type one diabetes and the way people perceive it, that perceive you is something very big in our culture. You know, it's like, I've, I've learned when I moved to the US and my husband's also been very amazing about that, that he was like, why do you care what people think? You know, it's like, just do your own thing. And if people are going to accept you, then great. If they're not, then you don't need them in your life kind of situation. Whereas growing up, the Arab culture is always, you have to be a people pleaser, you know, it's like, you have to conform to societal norms and um, all that stuff. So my growing up, my dad kind of wanted to protect me. It, it it was it was very interesting because he he saw me for who I am and he wanted people to see me for who I am rather than see me as the person with type one diabetes. So he tried to hide that part from people so people won't so people will get to see the real me, you know. And in doing that, it kind of backfired because it made me want to hide my diabetes and not own it as much as I do now. And that slowly kind of that that was actually the start of my eating disorder amongst a lot of other cultural <laughs> aspects that played into it. But yeah, in the States, I, I feel like there's a lot more information out there and education and awareness about what type one diabetes is and what uh, our limitations and lack of limitations are when it comes to our type one diabetes. So we don't, we don't get as much stigma and that kind of pity party (laughs) the way that we do here, here. It's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, hope you get better soon. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how it works, but thank you. So there's, there's definitely been like a lot of culture shock. (laughs) Uh, living here and there but I understand both cultures because I I grew up in American schools and we used to visit the U.S. a lot so I do know and understand how the culture is over there as well so yeah I, I I think there is still some stigma around it it's changing but sometimes you know and I've asked people because finding advocates who are from the GCC, but not not just UAE, but that really want to speak out or share their experiences. And many of them, they're they're living well with diabetes. And and it's okay, you can choose to advocate or not. You don't have to, but but it's a really it's not a casual topic, I guess. Like in the US, we're a little more casual maybe about some of the the healthcare topics and things and, and what we share and what we don't share. So I'm really mindful of that. But then also here having so many different cultures that live in the UAE and then so many different people react to it or have different ideas and thoughts about it. It's, it's just been really, really different. And I can relate to your father wanting to protect you 
because it, it is like a, a blessing and a curse. And that's what we're supposed to do as parents. But, but sometimes we have to really put it out there. And I remember once this um, boy walked up to Aaron when I was giving him a bolus through his pump. He was wearing a pump at a really small age. And you were there on a field trip or at a playground. And I don't even think it was a friend or somebody he knew. And he was just super curious as kids are. And he came up and he's like, what are you doing? And I froze for a second, like a half a second in my head. And I thought, okay, how do I deal with this? Because this is going to happen throughout his life. And I can either teach him to hide it, or I can just be really matter of fact about it right now and just put it out there. And I turned it into kind of a lesson. Like, I don't know how I was like, well, do you know where your pancreas is? You know, it was maybe a little bit too biology 101 for a five-year-old, but I was like, you know, this helps Aaron give, you know, gives him insulin and it does this and it does that. Do you know where your pancreas is? What's this thing in your body? And Aaron's needs a little bit of help. And so I think that was a really defining moment and how I kind of thought maybe it's better not to be, you know, so closed about it, but just be very matter of fact. And it's, it's a very simplistic view, but when people are struggling, sometimes I say, you know, like some of us have to wear glasses for help. Well, some people's pancreas needs, needs help that kind of helps at least kids in a very simplistic way to, to understand it a little more, but now he's, he's 14 and it's like, like no big deal. And he, um, he started doing improv and he had, he was part of the show and I was in the audience watching him and you forget sometimes because diabetes just is. And the tube from his insulin pump was sticking out when he walked out on stage. And there was this couple, young couple sitting in front of me and they were like, oh my gosh. And I, I couldn't hear what they were saying. So I don't know if they were feeling sorry for him or maybe they know somebody with type one and they were excited to see, you know, so people have a lot of different reactions and it's, it's not easy. It's not, but it's what you said is actually very huge. It's like the matter of fact. I feel like I was so like my judgment and my everything was so clouded by my emotions of how people will perceive me and how society would perceive me that I didn't know how to navigate it. But then when when I moved to the U.S., actually, it was before I moved to the U.S. when I started going to the diabetes conference, which is still the U.S. culture. Uh, and I kind of saw how people were owning their stories and, you know, the, the hat they were dealt and very matter of fact about things. It kind of removed a lot of the emotional aspect of it. Like it's still there. Don't get me wrong. But like you said, like I've had a lot of people like look or ask or stuff and I don't get overwhelmed or flustered about it. It's just the same way. It's like, oh, like, I like your t-shirt. Where'd you get your t-shirt from? You know, it's like, yeah, this is my insulin bump. But, you know, my pancreas doesn't work and this gives me insulin. Like just very chill about it. And usually that's all that people need to know, you know, mm-hmm. or that, that's what they're curious about. There's not more to it, more to it at that point. So yeah, that, that was like kind of one of the things where I kind of had to shift the way that I perceive things. And then when people saw how I owned it and how I was living my best life with it, that also shapes how they view me instead of me trying to be like hush hush and hide it and or subconsciously stigmatize myself you know and it owning my narrative kind of helped 
help people help, help people perceive me the way I wanted them to perceive me. So mm, um, that's nice. So in the panel, and then also before and in what we're we're going to talk about is diabulimia. It's not a, a subject that's talked about enough or a lot. Mm-mm. I didn't hear about it. I, I mean, I'm sure it's maybe more common among girls um, than boys or women than, than men, but it's a subject that I was not familiar with for several years until after um, we were well into diagnosis. And I happened to see some people mention it and I was like, wow, is it really a thing? And, and it, it is a thing and it's, it's a very difficult thing. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Because I think there's probably a lot of people here that aren't really aware um, of what it is and the challenge that that comes with that it's it's huge yeah uh before we dig deep into it i just think it's like worth mentioning just putting a trigger warning out there um about that we're going to dig into disorders mental health issues yeah yeah Um, and in the um in the podcast intro i'm going to mention it as well okay Okay. yeah definitely definitely so yeah so Diabulimia is an eating disorder specific to people with type 1 diabetes. Um, recently, they've kind of been trying to broaden the definition and including uh, people with type 2 diabetes that are on insulin. So it's essentially the manipulation of insulin to help you lose weight, um, which is pretty much diabulimia in a nutshell. But it kind of gets more complicated than that because uh, eating disorders are categorized as a mental health disorder. Um, it's a mental health disease. And usually when you have one, um, type of eating disorder, it's not narrowed down to just that one. So if you have diabulimia, uh, majority of the times there's also other types of eating disorders that accompany that, whether it's, um, uh, severe ca- caloric deficit, excessive working out, binging, purging, um, anorexia, uh, it can, it, other eating disorders can inc- be included. And the nature, just the way the nature of type one diabetes is the hyper focus on food and um, kind of, you know, digging deeper into how many calories, uh, not sorry, not calories, how many carbs, how the fat content, the fiber content, the absorption, all that stuff. It, it, it kind of sets us up for some level of disordered eating or eating disorder. So 60% of women with type one diabetes uh, will experience eating disorder at some point in their life. And 40% of men, yeah. And 40% of men with type one diabetes um, will experience eating disorder, disorder eating um, at some point in their life. And I know the, like the history of eating disorders was generally focused on women um, and this is outside of diabulimia. Um, it was focused on women and even some of the criterias for diagnosis were exclusively for women, like missed periods or irregular periods. So, like, so for men, it's like, oh, well, you don't take that box. We're not going to diagnose you with an eating disorder. And a lot of times, majority of the times, so at one in three people with an eating disorder are men. And a lot of times that goes undiagnosed or uh, misdiagnosed because it is kind of camouflaged under the umbrella of fitness and nutrition. There's like a lot of body dysmorphia and a lot of 
majority of people in the fitness industry have some form of eating disorder or disordered eating. But a lot of people look at it, look at it differently. It's like, oh, they're very well disciplined, or um, we're so proud of them, you know, but they don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And like I mentioned, it is a mental health disorder. And when it starts to control, and this is like one of the diagnosis aspects is it becomes an eating disorder when it starts to control your life. So you see a lot of fitness people or just people in general with type of, with um, eating disorders, they'd be like, oh, we'll meet up with you after dinner. You know, we can't eat out or when the when the control for food starts controlling your life, then, you know, that's when it's becoming an eating disorder. And with type one diabetes, that just adds more into the mix because things escalate very fast when you manipulate your insulin um, in ways you shouldn't have. You have very quick, fast track to DKA, um, which can lead to cardiac arrests. And when your blood sugar is elevated for a very long time. So one of the things, uh, one of the criteria for diagnosis of a, a diabulimia is usually an a- average A1C of above nine. But that's, that, that, that's, it's not always like if you're above nine, that's, um, but if like, it doesn't make sense, you know, if you're taking, if you're, if somebody says that they're taking their insulin correctly and their A1C is elevated, then that's usually a red flag. But if you're, if your A1C or your blood sugars are generally hovering high for a very long time, your body kind of adjusts to that, to that new norm. And if your blood sugar drops for any reason, it puts you at a higher risk of severe hyper, uh, severe hypoglycemia at a higher level. So that actually happened with me because for the longest time during my um, diabulimia years, my A1C was hovering above 13. And, um, and uh, one time, yeah, one day we actually had a science fair and I joke about it now, but my mom flips out every time I, I, I laugh about it, but we had a science fair at school and I came home and I, I took some insulin because I wanted to eat. And I told my mom, I was like, mama, can you fix me dinner? And she was like, she's like, why do I need to fix you dinner? You know, you're, she's like, you're, I, I think I was like 15 at that time. I was like 14 or 15. And she was like, fix yourself something. And I was just exhausted after a long day. And I just got lazy and I went to sleep. And next day they found me, uh, they found me seizing and unconscious by my, by, by my bed and my blood sugar never went below 85, but because my blood sugar was used to constantly being so Mm -hmm. high, that was really low for my body. So I actually went into a coma. I was in a coma for, um, six days. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. Because I, I fell and I hit uh, they they think that I tried to get up to go get mm. something to to drink or eat and I lost conscious and I hit the the corner mm. of my head on the the table. I was unconscious for a while, but then they had to induce me just to make sure that the uh, brain activity just to kind of give wow. my brain some time to heal mm. uh, because of the impact when I fell. So so that's another thing where it just shifts your regular levels, you know, and that makes it if if it's undiagnosed, and if your healthcare providers, their team don't know, they're still telling you, you know, it's like, lows are usually below 70 or something like that. But they don't know the full story or what's happening. And that's what happened for me. So actually, it's very interesting that I was never diagnosed with diabulimia until after I was in recovery, because Mm -hmm. we didn't have the resources and nobody knew what was going on here. And when I started working for the uh, type 1 diabetes nonprofit, I attended a a talk uh, about diabulimia. And 
it just all made sense. Like everything clicked. And I, I, I left the, I left the um, event and I called my mom and I'm like, mama, did you know that this was actually a thing? Like it's called diabolemia, blah, blah, blah. She's like, well, we, we knew what you were doing. We figured out what you were doing. We, I just never realized it had a name and I'm like, okay. And she's like, yeah, we didn't, no, we didn't have the resource to deal with it. So we just kind of lived day by day praying that you'll still wake up tomorrow. She was like, and this is like a very simplistic version of kind of what happened over the years. There was like a lot of fighting, grounding, fun, you know, they've tried everything to kind of help me come back to my senses. But again, it's, it's a mental, it's, it's a mental health disorder. So it's not something you say, well, don't do this, do that. You know, it's, your body just kind of takes over. And even now, like I'm, I've been recovered for almost 11 years now. And I, it's not a linear, you know, progress. Some days, some days I struggle, some days I don't, most days I don't. And I, I've never gone back to my old ways. And that's not something that I want to do. But still, like there are days where I don't have very positive body image. And I kind of have to talk myself out of those days. And I have, I have like my tips and tricks, like, avoid mirrors, you know, some clothes that just make me feel more comfortable hoodies or whatever. And, and that that's okay. You know, we life is all about ups and downs and it's just kind of not falling into your old ways. And a lot of people, like whenever I used to share my story, I still share my story. Like whenever I share my story, they'd be like, well, you knew you were hurting yourself. Like, why didn't you just stop? And it's like, it's, it's, it's not that easy. And like, even looking back at photos right now, like when I look at my photos, I was, I I was, I was skinny, you know, and even, and back then I thought that I was more like morbidly obese. And I just, so that just goes to show you that it's not about your body. It's about how you perceive yourself and that's all in your head. So it is a lot more complicated than just emitting insulin and knowing that what you're doing is wrong or harmful. Yeah, that's, it's, it's very complicated. Bulimia itself is complicated. And if you have the diabetes with it, it's even more complicated. And with, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but because diabetes is also such an individual experience and no two people are alike that the way someone is, will experience diabulimia would be very different from person to person as well, probably. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And there's also just the way people manipulate it is very different, you know. Um, I I don't I don't talk in details about how that goes down because we don't want to teach people. Um, no, 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 we don't. Yeah, um, but there's <clears throat> different ways of doing it. There's it, and people are getting smarter. And with technology, it's become easier to do it in ways where healthcare providers cannot pick up on. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it was it actually. So it's easier and harder. It's 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 harder because you do have the technology and everything is there, you know, but there's still ways to get around it. But back in my days, we really didn't have the technology to do that, you know. It was literally a logbook and like paper and pen. So you can just mm. write down whatever, but then A1C never matched up with the logbook. So um Yeah, wow, was- that's incredible. So that leads me to a few questions. So if anyone out there is listening and they are worried about this or they think they might be experiencing it, or if, and this maybe is three different questions, or if you're a parent and you have a child that's experiencing it, 
what would you recommend the steps to, to take to try to help themselves or to help someone? Okay, I'm going to like give you a straightforward answer to your specific question. And then I'm going to dig deeper into kind of avoiding it from the get-go because... Yeah, this is that's what I want. That was my next that's question. Just, that's my next question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if, if you feel like there's in the moment and like you see the signs and like the warning signs, I would really strongly urge you to find a mental health, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist that specialized in eating disorders, because to be quite honest, it's not something that I would recommend you, not you, like parents or individuals dealing with by themselves um, because of the complexity of the situation. And um, you need to loop your endocrinologist in because even when you decide to get a hold of things, you cannot drop your A1C and your blood sugars rapidly. That needs to be a slow pro- uh, process because uh, your body can and will go into shock and that can actually cause more issues with your eyes, um, heart, a lot of different organs um, because of the toll that it has taken on your body. So definitely therapy. There are some, uh, if it's severe enough, there are some live-in facilities um, that deal with the eating disorders. There's a really good one that's well-equipped to deal with diabulimia. And again, like with diabulimia and type 1 diabetes, not a lot of facilities will take because they don't have the capability or the knowledge to deal with the type 1 diabetes aspect. But there's one called, I think it's called Sierra Hope. It's in Nevada. They know how to deal with type 1 diabetes. And and yeah, and one of the things that we also, like one of the common practices when, especially in early phases of recovery, is we actually switch patients from um, pump to syringes to shock in the early stages because... Mm -hmm. It's easier to disconnect when you're on a pump. So if you're on shots and and shots need to be monitored. So Mm -hmm. you get it. You can't take the insulin Mm -hmm. out of your system and easing into it. Like one of the things, another one of like the standard practices is because it is hard and you can't push everything a hundred percent on that person because again, it's like, we keep going back to the mental health. So it's basically like if you're, if you're stressed out, if, if you're overloaded at work and you have like a lot of issues at home, you can't just add more to someone's plate. And that's where people with eating disorders are. They're already overwhelmed. They've got so much going on. You can't push them. You can't corner them and push things on them because that's just a recipe for disaster. So the first steps that we encourage them to do or standard practice when or in early recovery is to make sure that they at least have the basal dose. So Lantus or like long acting insulin, that is a must. And then we'll like slowly ease into the um, short acting. Um, so definitely, definitely seeking out professional help. And I'm actually a mentor. I'm one of the mentors with an organization called We Are, Di- uh, we Are Diabetes. Um, and we mentor people with uh, in recovery for eating disorders. But we do not take people who are in active eating disorders. So mm-hmm. you need to have had some sort of therapy before joining us. So we kind of just help hold your hand throughout Uh the recovery journey. 
Amazing. Yeah. And if um, if somebody wanted to reach out to that organization, if they're here in the UAE or Middle East, do they also offer support there or is it primarily just focused? No, worldwide. Okay. We, yeah. Yeah. I had one of my mentees was actually in Dubai. So, so uh, like you said, also avoiding it or, you know, sometimes there's certain things in life and experiences that, you know, maybe avoided, maybe not, but I don't take that word lightly, like avoiding it, but what advice do you have for mothers of young children with diabetes? Because we, like my son was diagnosed at 20 months old and being hyper aware of the food, you're absolutely right. It, it's insane. And I see, you know, and of course we're trying to control as much as possible and make the blood sugars great because, you know, we want our children to grow up healthy and happy, but there, there is also that fine line and a gray line. And sometimes, you know, parents will ask questions in a support group and it sounds almost like they're being too rigid with food and counting carbs and all the things and, and such a young child. So having said that, if we have a child with type one diabetes, what would you suggest are some of the things that we can do to potentially maybe avoid um, having our children experience diabulimia or teach them how to grow up with a, a good relationship with food and diabetes? Yeah, that's actually a very good question, Pam. So um, people, people with type 1 diabetes are twice as likely to develop an eating disorder because like we mentioned, the nature of type 1 diabetes and having to um, f- put so much focus and emphasis on food, um, we need to be very cognizant of that and how our other behaviors and how we perceive uh, food and body image outside of diabetes um, plays into it. And, uh, a majority of, uh, of our culture and even, even internationally, not just Arab culture, but it's, it's a bigger issue over here is we do have a major fat phobia issue. A lot of people like to claim that they don't, and it's more of a health issue or they're doing it for health concerns still don't quite understand the full, um, the larger picture and the kind of the, the, the full capacity of how it's actually more damaging to the health than beneficial. Um, like one of the things when I was going through um, the thick of my eating disorder, I would get compliments and um, praises nonstop. It's like, oh, we're so proud of you. Like you're, you're taking care of your health or you look amazing and all that stuff. And the only thing that that did is was push me further into my eating disorder because I was getting positive praise. But you, when you, they didn't understand that I was literally hanging by a thread. Like I, it was not a healthy way of losing weight. So that is like one of, one of the, I think most important and hardest things to do is we need to do a self inventory check, you know, and see how, be honest with ourselves and 
see how we we view different sizes or um, how how we look at people um, with different body sizes, and we will come to realize that pretty much every single one of us, to some extent, was programmed to think in that way. And unfortunately, it is it is a very strong culture like the diet culture it's everywhere it's in the media even if we like to believe that we're not impacted by it from a very 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 young age that's everything that we've been exposed to and it plays into how how we act and then throw into it type 1 diabetes and that just kind of takes things to a whole other level because you are you you are concerned directly about health implications at that point. But building that healthy body image from a very young age kind of creates that platform that when you do add type 1 diabetes in the mix, you already have a strong um, basis and strong foundation where you're not having to kind of add more to a you know, rocky surface, um, so to speak. So I think it's, it's, it's very, it is hard and it's very complicated. And it's something that I've also had to, um, my kids don't have type one diabetes, but still growing up, uh, with, with an eating disorder and knowing how all the different factors played into it, it, it had to, it pushed me to do a lot of unlearning and learning of things. So I don't, I don't create the same environment for them. And given the fact that I do have type one diabetes, the boys are, my kids are slightly tiny bit um, at a higher risk of developing type one diabetes. So I just want to make sure that, you know, I've got everything um, taken care of. And it, it really comes down a lot of it to also language, like language really matters. And I know that's one thing that we talk a lot about um, in the type one diabetes world, even outside of diabulimia, you know, it's like, I have type one diabetes, I'm not diabetic, you know, and stuff like that. And when talking about food, it's the same thing, like, I, we should not be addressing food as this is a good food, or this is bad food. And this is something that slowly, um, more healthcare providers are, are becoming aware of and making that shift. Like when I was first diagnosed, like one of the things that I, um, I will not eat is pizza. And after like, kind of reflecting and trying to figure out like, what is my issue with pizza? I've come to realize it was because when I was diagnosed, it was how that my healthcare team spoke about pizza because like, I'm I'm sure you know this Pam, but it's pizza has a lot of carbs, but then you also have a lot of fat. So you have the delayed spike and it just kind of sometimes gets complicated with eating pizza. So for me, like when I hear pizza, it's just like red flags come up everywhere. And I'm just like, you know what? No, it's, it's more mental than anything. Like I, obviously I, I do eat pizza and I figured out and figured out how to manage my blood sugars with that. But it, again, it it was because of what was told to me and how like my brain registered it to me, like pizza is red flags. 
So it's, it's very important to really be cognizant and aware of how we talk about things. And um, even like the, the smallest things yesterday, we were hanging out with a friend and their kid apparently lost weight. And his dad was just telling him, you know what, I'm so proud of you. You've lost weight. Like, I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. But at the same time, what message are you sending that kid? You know, you're sending that kid a message where I wasn't proud of you when you were fat, but now you're skinnier. I'm, I'm proud of you. And I want you to keep doing that. And unfortunately kids seek their parents approval. So if they cannot achieve that or attain that in a healthy way, they will, they will try to find other ways to get the same end result that are not always healthy weights. And we don't know what goes. So that's another thing where it's taken me, it's taken me a while, but I think it's safe to say that I've gotten there, but I will not ever comment on anybody's size, whether it's good, bad, that is not something for me to be involved in. That is something between that person and their healthcare team. It's just, it's none of my business. I do not know what goes on behind the scenes, even if it's a quote unquote positive change. I don't know how they got there. You know, it's like everybody thought that I went through a positive change when I lost weight and they didn't know how I got there. Mm -hmm. It was like the unhealthiest. It, It wasn't just the eating disorders. It was just the, the excessive working out, the extreme caloric deficit. Um, my mom's probably going to hear this. So I'm sorry, mom. Like I was living on diet Coke and cigarettes throughout my college life. You know, it's like how, how much more damage could you have done? And still people were praising me because we were programmed to think that fat is bad and skinny is good. And even now more like recently, we've had a lot of scientific data that has proven that that's not the case. Fat is not all like body weight is not always uh, excessive body weight is not always indicators of unhealthy lifestyle, but it's going to take a very long time to make that switch because of the way that everything was established and um, set up the healthcare system as well. It's not just society and individuals and the way that people perceive it. It's also the healthcare system. And I think the most, most powerful thing that we could do is really educate ourselves and have the knowledge to, to train, to retrain ourselves and to also allow us to be advocates for our own selves. And that has been something that's, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have an amazing um, endocrinologist and a team that understands um, eating disorders and diabetemia. But like, even, even with my kids, I, I've had to have a conversation with their pediatrician from when they were young. I'm like, you can weigh them, but I do not want the number to be said out loud. And you have, if you have any concerns with their body weight, I do not want this topic to be brought up in front of them. And my, even for me personally, my clinic knows that I do not want to be weighed because that's a, that's a trigger for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not want to be weighed unless it's something like if they're trying to adjust my dose for some medication or another that is directly related to my weight, then I will let them weigh me. But again, I do not want to know the number and I don't want to discuss, you know? Mm-hmm. I think um, that's it's, very 
health, healthy in many ways. Um, I think people yeah. with either if they even had diabulimia or not, I think everyone needs to listen to everything that you're talking about right now, because it's, it's everywhere. And it's so, so critical um, that people stop obsessing about weight and stop defining people by this number that like you're pointing out is not necessarily the best healthcare indicator. Yeah. And also like we are in a time and age where we have access to so, so much technology and so much data inside diabetes and outside and more so with, with diabetes, because we have our CGM data. We have um, all these apps that help us sort our, um, uh, our data um, diabetes related data. And then you try to add into it other technologies that are not diabetes related, like trackers and um, the Apple watch and all that stuff. And that, that can really kind of create that competitiveness inside your brain that will lead to eating disorder or disordered eating whether you like to realize that or not, you know, and that, that also makes us lose touch with how, how we listen to our body. You know, it's like a lot of people, they, they don't, they lost communication with their body because they're so focused on this, on these technologies, you know, it's like, Oh, I have to uh, log in 10,000 steps today. Or it's like, well, what is your body telling you? You know, if Mm -hmm. you're exhausted, you need to listen to your body and take that day off. And a lot of people are not able to do that because they're so focused on the data. And we do that as well with diabetes. You know, it's like, Oh, my, um, my range has to be between 80 and a hundred. I was like, okay, great. Your range is between 80 and a hundred, but you know what? We're not robots. We're human beings. Some days your blood sugar is going to go high. You are, you, you are going to be out of range and you need to be okay with that. And you need to be, and you need to allow your body to feel that and just, you know, don't beat yourself up about it because you are human. And there's so many different factors that you cannot control. And just give yourself that grace because you know what? This is a lifelong, hopefully not a very, (laughs) not a lifelong disease, but for what we have right now, this is, it's, 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 uh, it's here for a while, you know, Mm -hmm. and you need to just be kind with yourself. And like another, another thing that is very, very, very good practice is positive self-talk we're not, we're not taught to do that. And for a lot of people, it, it's, it feels very unnatural. It's like, what, I'm going to, I'm going to praise myself. Like, like, isn't that conceited or, but, but it's not, our body goes through so much every day to keep us alive. And we, we rarely give it the, the gratitude and appreciation that it needs. Like we look at ourselves in the mirror and I'm like, Oh, look at my love handles. Look at my stretch marks. Look at this. Like, you know, all these things But we forget to sit down and really count every single blessing and be grateful for what we have, you know, like, Mm. Oh, that's like during my recovery. And even now this is a practice that I do every day, every morning and every night before I go to sleep. And Pam, when I first started, it was so hard for me to even get one thing on my list. It's like they, they, when I first started, they're like just three things, a 
about your body that you're grateful for today. And it was so hard to do that. And now I can just like, I start and I just keep going, 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 even on my worst days, even when I feel like my, feel like my body has failed me in every single way. I have so much to be thankful for. It's like, you know what? Today I'm thankful for my eyesight that I could actually see and drive. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for my arms that can hug and carry my babies. I'm, I'm grateful. It just, it reminds you that, you know what, even on my worst days, my body shows up for me. And that has taught me to be like taught me gratitude and just allowed me to honor it in ways that I never did before. You know, I used to beat it up. It was even like working out used to be a punishment. It felt like a punishment for my body. It's like, oh, today you eat, you ate that hamburger. You need to run on the treadmill for two hours. Now it's not about that anymore. It's like, you know what? My body is awesome. It's able to to bike for an hour or do whatever. And that's how that's, that's the energy that I carry with me. It's like, you know what? No, my body's awesome. Even with my diabetes, even with everything that I have to do, my body's so capable of doing everything people without diabetes do and so much more. And that's, that in itself is such an empowering and powerful thing that even when life happens and things get hard, it doesn't knock me down the same way it used to before. Even like on my worst body image days now, I'm still able to be like, you know what? No, but you are awesome. You know, your body was able to carry two babies before. Even, even like I was, I was technically in, in recovery, but I used to be, I used, I still used to be hard on my body. You know, my, when my kids were conceived through IVF and like, whenever I'd be like, Oh, my body's awesome. It carried two babies. My, my brain would start messing with me and be like, well, you like, you had fertility issues. You had, you had IVF, even, even though you did deliver two babies, you know, you had preeclampsia, blah, blah, blah. But now it's like, you know what? Yes, even with all that, my body still overcame that. And I have two beautiful babies, you know, to, 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 to show for that. And, and, you know, as, as cocky and conceited as it may sound, my body's awesome with all the imperfections and that's such a powerful and amazing place to operate from and I it just the energy you carry it into everything in your life and it's just so freeing and liberating to be in that place that I never ever want to go back to my old ways it's just it, it is it was a very scary and dark place to be you know not knowing if I'm gonna wake up next day and everything I, I was sacrificing, you know, it's like my eyesight was going bad, everything. Like I, I got so, 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 so lucky that Mm. I, I did not have any permanent, um, damage done that I know of, although I'm, I'm still part of me is very convinced that my fertility issues had something to do with that, but there's no way to prove that. Yeah. Maybe, Um, maybe no people without diabetes have challenges with fertility too. So. Yeah. Yeah. True. And it's not something that I beat myself uh, up over, you know, it's, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what? I can't change the hand that I was dealt, but where I am right now is, I'm I'm proud of everything I've I've managed to achieve in where I am right now. So it, it's it's really important to be very like cognizant and 
be aware of what we say and how we say, because people around you are always listening, especially children. They mm-hmm. are always listening. And even if you think it, I think it's very important to dissect the messages that we say and really try to understand how kids might interpret that. And like, like I said before, like things like good and bad food, we've, we've learned to do that with um, blood sugars. You know, they used to say before, I still remember when I first, I was first diagnosed, like when I would take my log book to the, to the doctor, like with a red marker, he would just like circle my, like the high blood sugars and that, yeah, that really messes with you. And unfortunately, we, we still do that with foods, you know, it's like, oh, this is, this is, this is bad food, like, there's no good, and there's no bad food, you know, it's, it's sometimes, yeah, you, you want to eat the greasy burger or the ice cream or whatever, you know, you just need to figure out how to figure out your insulin with that. And language really matters when it comes to that. And then you also have like you need to also as a parent like for the older kids like the teenagers know the signs really early on like some of the some of this the signs that you can pick up on is first of all like skipping meals and which is like another another issue that's become a thing now in our in our uh, modern world is a lot of uh, eating disorders and disordered eatings are are camouflaged like intermittent fasting can Yes, it has a lot of benefits and like it can be really helpful for health, but also that can also be a slippery slope. Yes. And sudden, yeah, and sudden dietary changes, you know, if your kid decides, again, these are, I'm not saying that if it happens, it's, it definitely means that your kid has some form of eating disorder. But like if your kid wakes up one day and goes like, oh, I am vegan today. And then next day decides like, oh, I'm not eating carbs. That's usually, a red flag. That's mm-hmm. something to keep an eye out on. There's um, a lot happening around that with kids. And I was shocked now growing up as a, a girl in us, like we were always like hyper obsessed, but I was really surprised when I think it was a year ago or so my son, you know, started talking about his body and, you know, working out more. And of, of course everyone wants to be healthy, but but like when you're 12 or 13 and you start talking about the need to get a six pack, I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. like that, that is heavy at, at that age that they're already, kids are already thinking about it. Yeah. And it's definitely learned behavior. So a lot of it is we, I, I know a lot of parents like to blame social media and yes, social media is huge because they do have, it, it's, mm. it's unfiltered. It's, it's filtered, unfiltered um, out there. But also we need to also recognize and realize that majority of it is learned behavior from home, from us as parents, whether, whether we realize it or not. And this is why it's very important to make like a self inventory check and take a step back and really evaluate where we are and where we operate from as parents, because mm-hmm. our kids are always watching. They're always watching. That is like so true. That is so true. Yeah. We, we try to keep a healthy balance and I'm really sensitive to what I say because of the experiences that I had and things people would say to me and the things I observe as well that people are saying to other people. 
but it's hard. Like even, you know, my husband had a, a surgery recently and he couldn't exercise for a few weeks. And he's like, Oh my gosh, I'm gaining weight. I'm like, dude, you had a surgery, like, like rest, like we are mm-hmm. so hyper-focused to the point where we don't even, you know, realize that whole kind of negative thing. And, and even also as I'm listening to you talk, you know, I mean, type one diabetes is super challenging, but also people with type two diabetes, I hope that they're listening to everything that you're saying, because I believe that they share similar struggles and challenges. And a lot of the, the thing that I really don't like that breaks my heart often is the way people talk about people with type two diabetes. Um, whenever people ask me, Oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I have a company and we support people that have diabetes and it's almost as if it's scripted. The things that people will say to me, they're like, Oh, I bet you have so much work to do because so many people are unhealthy here and they're just like eating junk and their lifestyle and, 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 and it's just constantly blaming people with Mm -hmm. diabetes and that I I don't see like a, a near end in sight to that. So if you have type two diabetes or pre-diabetes, please go back and listen to everything that Nora has just talked about, about self-love and think of yourself in that context. Also, if you have type one too, but it it hurts my heart. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of blame uh, put on people with type type two diabetes. It's almost as if it's like, oh, it's self-inflicted, but so um, I had a, I had a colleague in, um, at Stanford and she did research on um, people with type 2 diabetes. And it was actually very fascinating that um, we, before we used to think that it, it was more uh, linked to obesity, but now they've come to realize that type 2 diabetes is actually more genetic disposition than mm-hmm. obesity. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm really hoping that the shift will be, will be made fast because really that, that notion in itself is more damaging um, than type two diabetes can possibly be, which a lot of people don't realize the implication. And it also goes back to like, we're still trying to also navigate the mental health space. You know, it's like when you have that big movement where mental health is health um, and trying to get people to, destigmatize mental health, which is what eating disorders are, you know? And so I think we also need to make that shift when it comes to type two diabetes, that it is not self-inflicted. And, and again, like, I know I keep going back to this, but fat is not always unhealthy and skinny is healthy. And this is like something it really, like, this is one of my biggest pet peeves is I would, I would, personally know a lot of people outside of social media and know how they operate, you know, their lifestyle. And it's like super unhealthy, um, restrictive diets and just kind of living off of like just smoking and like water, drinking water and just like very unhealthy habits. But then they have this whole other persona on social media where it's like oh we're very active and um you know we do uh, i don't know low carb or intermittent fasting and everybody's like oh yeah they're the fitness experts they're Mm. healthy they're and i'm just like this 
is the problem you know yeah. this is where the problem lies and then you have all these kids that see this stuff and they're like oh well I want to look like her and they don't understand like what's going on behind the scenes yeah and when um, they reach that age where they can start having more control over their health and it th- those results aren't happening then they take these extreme actions to to try to achieve it it's it's a horrible cycle it is a horrible cycle and it takes a lot of strength and determination and a strong will to really keep yourself on the right path and to to kind of stay away from that stuff like one of the things that i've had to do a couple of years ago i thought that i was strong in my recovery and i i like I would see these pages and all that stuff and it wouldn't change how I was navigating my recovery journey, but it wasn't until I, I did that. I don't know. I don't remember why I, I took the the step. I think I was just uh, on one of the Instagram accounts. So I follow a lot of um, body positive uh, image accounts on, on Instagram. And one of them was like, unfollow any um, accounts that, might potentially trigger you. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, you know what, I don't need to do that. I'm fine. But then I just decided one day, I'm like, you know what, my anxiety was through the roof. And I'm like, I'm just gonna do that. And I just did like a whole purge on like my Instagram, you know, anything that I just felt like was not realistic or unattainable or just did not sit well with me. I was just like unfollow, 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 unfollow. And I followed like a lot of um, body positive pages and a lot of, I've also like followed a lot of, I hesitate to say nutrition because nutrition kind of can go both ways, but like kid nutrition um, accounts and how to talk about food. And I thought that it was it was beneficial for my kids, but what I didn't realize that it was also very beneficial for me, how to help, help me with how I perceived food as well. So after I did that, I I realized such a huge shift in my, in my mental health. Like it just, it was kind of like a load lifted off. And I'm like, I didn't realize that it was kind of like this lingering feeling just sitting there in the background. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like, I don't need that in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's just such, it's, it's just amazing. The power that social media and like media in general has over you that you don't even realize and you you think that it doesn't impact you like there's this also this documentary which I urge everybody to watch it's called killing us softly Mm. Uh, there are a couple of different parts and uh, I think the latest one is I want to say four either three or four you can find it on YouTube. We had to watch it for our social uh, sociology class. And um, it's basically about how the media shapes and perceives uh, beauty standards. Even, even if we, even if we think that they don't affect us, or would like to believe that we're strong enough that they, they don't shape our views. And it's how it's just the subliminal messages are everywhere, everywhere. Like it's just, it's just hard to avoid. Mm. So it does take a lot of work to get to a place where you kind of dissociate and disconnect from that. Yeah. Um, What you consume is just as important as the food, well-balanced food and well-balanced media, social media consumption is, is equally important. And we very much talk about that a lot here. We'll we'll also put that uh, documentary. We'll find the link and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Cool. 
Wow. Yeah. I can like sit here and talk with you all day. I think, I, I think we need you to come back to the podcast because there's still so much we can, we can talk about. Um, and I think also, you know, the fact that you were pregnant with twins and managed type one diabetes through all of that as well is equally amazing. So maybe another discussion about that and, and some of the other, other things that you're doing and involved in, but I really thank you so much for being here and sharing this very private um, experience with, with us and with, with everyone that's listening and for all the work and research that you do, because it definitely makes the world a better place. Um, and I'm sure I know a couple of times you mentioned, you know, your, your parents and your mom might be listening, but I have no doubt that they must be extremely proud of you um, and the amazing person that you've become and, and all these amazing Thank things you. that you do. So with that, I will, I will leave you for now, but we will see each other again very soon. Definitely. Thank you so much, Pam, for having me on the podcast. And it's, it's really a privilege for me to share, to share my story and kind of help in any way possible, even if I can help one person, that's, that's a huge difference. And I'm always an open book. It's taken me a while to get there, but I'm an open book because um, I don't want anybody struggling and suffering in silence, you know, it's uh so if anybody kind of needs any help, I would gladly be there. And if I don't have the answers, I will help guide them in the right direction. So okay. if it's um, okay, we'll yeah. also put the link for your, um, your Instagram or whatever social media you would like people to reach out to. We'll put that in the show notes as well. If you have any direct questions for Nora, feel free to reach out to her or reach out to us. We'll pass it along, but it'll, it'll all be there in the, in the show notes. Sounds good. And yeah, I'm, a, I'm an open book. So oh. Nothing's off, off limits. Oh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful yeah. day. I want to again thank Noor Al-Ramahi for joining us for this very important discussion, very eye-opening discussion. And I love so much of what she shared about her journey, but also her practice of gratitude, I think, is really amazing and something that we can all learn from and all aspire to practice. If any of this sounded familiar to you, maybe you never heard of diabulimia before. And after understanding a little bit more about it, if you'd like to reach out to Noor, her social media handle is there in the show notes. You can drop her a DM or drop us an email at diapoint, and we can also forward that to Noor as well. There is no shame in asking for help if you need it and when you need it please reach out. Thank you again, Noor, for this wonderful, enlightening discussion. And I wish everyone a wonderful, healthy day.